Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Welcome to ABG, Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern day Asian American woman. I'm Janet. I'm Helen. I'm Mel. And I'm Hesu. Mental health is a topic that we get many messages about from our listeners. It's a sensitive and complicated topic, and especially with all the recent world events that have occurred, we thought now is the right time to take a deeper dive into this topic. Back in July 2019, we released episode 44, Mental Health with Christine Chen, where our good friend shared her personal experience with clinical depression. Today, we wanted to offer a different perspective on the topic by bringing in Hesu Jo, a licensed marriage and family therapist based in the Bay Area, California. Hesu has seven years of experience as a mental health professional, including working with Asian American youth, families, and adults. Given her firsthand experience dealing with generational and cultural differences in her own family, Hesu is also the clinical support lead at BetterHelp, the largest online counseling platform worldwide, whom we've recently started partnering with. And after this episode, if you are curious, you can go to our show notes for a link to sign up with a special discount. Let's welcome Hesu to the Asian Boss Girl podcast. Welcome. Welcome. Wow. Thank you so much for such a nice introduction. Janet does a really good job with that. (laughs) Can you share a little bit about your, you know, your family and how you grew up just to give our listeners some context? Yeah, sure. Um, So my parents are originally from South Korea, and they came to the States in 1980. And they originally came here just to study. They came here for grad school. They had every intention of going back to Korea once they were done with school. So they don't have this typical immigrant story of coming here for opportunity and a better life, because I think they were fortunate enough to come from pretty good families back in Korea. So they didn't have a reason to leave. But you know how life happens, right? So once They were in school, they had been married already, and my mom got pregnant with my older sister, and so my dad had this motivation to get done with school a little bit faster to start providing for this new growing family. And so he was able to get pretty good employment and things kept going in that good direction for him in terms of his career track. And then I came along and we were still here. And I think at that point they were still planning to go back eventually someday. Um, But by the time my sister and I had grown into talking, walking people with friends and communities built around us, I think the idea of plucking us out of this country and taking us to somewhere that was foreign to us was really freaky. And so my sister and I were really resistant to it. This was when I was in kindergarten. She was in fifth grade. Mm. And so I think at that time, it was then decided, like, I guess America is truly our home now, which it always was to me and my sister. Um, So I was raised by Korean immigrants with a atypical immigration story. Um, 
They really instilled a lot of traditional Korean values into us. They taught us the language. I grew up eating Korean food every day. So inside my home, there was a lot of like decor that was pretty reflective of what a home might look like in Korea. But at the same time, both of my parents are actually professors. So I think oh. their career tracks having been exposed to a lot of people in this Western world and having to speak English every day made them come to a point where they like assimilated a little bit more than some of the parents of my friends and they also were able to pick up the language pretty quickly so they are pretty fluent in English so while I was raised like super Korean in some ways my parents are also very progressive in a lot of other ways um, simply because of like who their colleagues are and being exposed to students year after year as professors and I grew up in San Jose in California San Jose is pretty big so I grew up in an enclave of San Jose where there's a lot of Asian people but most of those Asian people that I grew up with are Vietnamese mm -hmm. so I, I do consider that kind of like part of my own personal heritage and cultural background having grown up um, eating a lot of Vietnamese food Uh, being invited to friends family parties and different traditional gatherings that they have there's also a lot of like latinos in the area that i grew up in and actually not that many white people so i think i grew up in this weird little bubble yeah not understanding that this is not reflective of the rest of the country no i could totally relate to you i actually grew up in um union cities oh okay. so my dad works in san jose so i'm very familiar with like there's so many amazing vietnamese food and like my college roommates are also from the area so i feel like a very part of their um like cultural gatherings as well so It sounds very familiar what you're talking about in terms of San Jose, like growing up there. Yeah. So it was like a nice thing to have familiarity in terms of other Asian people around me. But at the same time, I think I also grew up feeling very othered because mm -hmm. I really didn't know that many other Korean kids until like college. I went to UCLA mm -hmm. where I met like tons of Korean people and I kind of had a culture shock being around so many people that had a lot of... Um, similarities in terms of like sense of humor and different family dynamics that they could understand mm -hmm. and I at that point felt like oh I met all these people that I don't really have to explain myself to so that was a different and novel but also like comforting experience um, so yeah. I think in a nutshell that's essentially how I grew up where I grew up what did you major in at UCLA so I went in undeclared not really knowing what I wanted to do and I think I, I've noticed this trend, right? Like if you're raised by parents that are doing pretty well for themselves, meaning I grew up pretty privileged, I never had this like strong drive to find a really good career to make a lot of money. It was more my parents being supportive of you should follow your passions. And of course, we want you to mm -hmm. find something that's going to lead to financial stability. But it's not the most important thing for you to become a doctor or a lawyer. So that's another different kind of experience that I had from a lot of my other friends whose parents did struggle with money. And so that was mm -hmm. a driving factor in terms of career choice for a lot of my close friends. So I went in undeclared, not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life. And I didn't feel like I wanted to choose a major based on a career because that was advice from my dad. You know, my dad works in finance now and he majored in Chinese literature. It's like a whole other thing. Wow. But because he had that experience, he really let me and my sister know that we should follow the things that we are interested in because career stuff kind of falls into place after that and college should be a time to enlighten yourself, um, enjoy the privilege of being educated. And even though he said all that stuff, it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do. I've always been interested in like the motivation of 
behavior, why people do things the way that they do, um, think the way that they think, and then behave based on like the feelings that they have. Mm -hmm. And so what better place to kind of study all those interests than psychology. So I did major in psychology in undergrad at UCLA. And so that's where I started getting my first early exposures to this world that has become my livelihood. How did you get into the work of therapy afterwards? It's a great question. It was never truly like a career pursuit. I don't think I was ever a small child thinking like, I'm going to grow up to be a therapist. It was more doing that thing that my parents had advised of follow your dreams, like follow the things that interest you. Um, but also keep it practical. So that's kind of where they were like finding this balance of it all. And so like every chapter of my life, I feel like I was doing things that felt right for me. And if I found myself in a place where it didn't feel right for me, I would scaffold and kind of try to shape the direction of my life into something that felt better. Mm -hmm. I actually majored in psychology thinking that I was going to go into marketing. Mm. I don't know. It was probably influenced by movies. I grew up watching a ton of movies because my parents worked a lot. So I was kind of this latchkey kid raised by the third parent of television. And there was this movie with Mel Gibson called What Women Want. It's Mm. so Uh, random mm -hmm. and weird. But he's like this guy that works in advertising and marketing. And I thought that was so cool. And so based on that, I was like, I'm going to go to school to study human behavior and the mind. Because if I understand where people are coming from, I can understand how to make really good commercials to make them buy stuff. (laughs) Um, But of course, that's like kind of an unorthodox route to go into marketing. But I tried to do that anyway. Um, One of my first jobs in the marketing space was at Adidas. I tried that for a while and it did not resonate with whatever my internal values were. It didn't feel like this is what I want to spend the rest of my life doing, Mm -hmm. like promoting something that to a lot of people is very important. But at the time it was like, do I want to spend most of my waking hours working towards clothes and making famous people more famous and like that kind of stuff. So that's where I was kind of feeling like I want to do something that's more helpful to people. I think if you talk to any therapist, I would imagine most of them would say that it started at an early age, that they were the friend that their friends would go to, that they are the person that people sought out for a shoulder to lean on or an ear to listen and often like some kind of grounded advice that felt good for this person to hear. So I decided to leave Adidas and look for jobs in the psychology space because I figured like let's use my education for something around helping people. And I really didn't have a lot of knowledge of what therapy was. And this kind of goes back to a cultural upbringing of my own. It's like, I don't think a lot of Asian families are talking about therapy Mm -hmm. or even talking about the things that lead to someone needing to seek it out. If you're having mental and emotional struggle or pain, I think a lot of Eastern cultures are going to focus on like working on that privately. It's a family matter. It's not something that you should be talking to strangers about. Not that that's wrong. It's like a different way to look at everything. But because of that um, kind of frame of reference that I think my parents had, like, I don't think they knew what therapy was. So it's not Mm -hmm. something that I knew existed. But just like looking on Craigslist and Indeed and like all these early sites to find a job, I was just searching like, what can I find as a person with a bachelor's in psychology. And so I started doing a lot of things here and there. I worked in a research lab for PhD students that were doing therapy for clients of their own. Um, I worked in school settings and in day treatment facilities, um, working with kids on the spectrum or with special needs. And so this kind of opened the 
door to meeting a bunch of other people and professionals in this space that have different kind of licenses. And I met someone that was a therapist and she kind of told me about what the track looks like to get there. And so that's what I started working towards at that time. So in a nutshell, that's kind of how I got to where I am today. I think something that you had just mentioned earlier that I want to ask a little bit more on and something that I, I really hope that we can eradicate one day is just how mental health is such a taboo topic in Asian mm-hmm. culture. Why do you think that is the case? I mean, you mentioned that your parents kind of just never went through therapy, so they, they might not know even how to yeah. address it. But it's such like a forbidden topic within Asian right. culture. Yeah. Why do you think that's the case? The idea of therapy or just like the practice of it is very Western. It originates in like European countries and most of the founding fathers of psychology are old white dudes. Mm -hmm. The field itself like comes from somewhere very far away from like my parents, most people of East Asian cultures especially. So I think some of the reasons why it's very taboo to even talk about mental and emotional struggle is because of this collectivistic nature of the cultures there. You're very much a representation of your family and the way that you behave and the way that you present yourself to the outward world is very much a reflection of how your parents raised you. And so parents in a lot of East Asian cultures will take responsibility for the kid's mistake or the kid's error in some kind of treatment to other people or how they perform in school even illness is looked at as the mom's fault sometimes like mom didn't take Mm -hmm. care of this kid well enough and so now she is sick and so because of that I think it's it could be you know taboo to talk about this stuff because you don't want to bring shame and all this stuff to your family and your family doesn't want to talk about it because they don't want other people to think that they did something wrong. Mm-hmm. So I think that's at least some part of it. I do know that the study of psychology and the treatment form of therapy is becoming more accepted and more of a thing in a lot of East Asian countries and Asian in general, um, but still like worlds away from where we are in America, where it's pretty trendy to have a therapist and you know, there's memes about it. There's like a bunch Mm -hmm. of stuff online about being very open about being depressed and having anxiety. Mm -hmm. I myself have a therapist and it took a lot of getting over this feeling of shame that you were talking about too. That's kind of just inherent within our culture to not go out and seek help, right? Do you have any examples of patients you've worked with? And of course, respecting their privacy, but examples of scenarios where culture was a strong influence in whatever issue or issues they were trying to to work through? On the kind of macro level, I have worked with clients of many different kinds of Asian descent. So like uh, Filipino, Korean, Vietnamese, Taiwanese, people whose parents are from mainland China. I think that's pretty much the extent of the clients that I have worked with. And I can't say that any of them had um, something come up in the therapeutic process that wasn't connected to their family and the cultural Mm -hmm. upbringing and their background. I've even worked with people that are third generation, meaning it was their grandparents that immigrated here. And it's still passed into those generations beyond like these clients didn't even speak the language of their grandparents, and yet they still felt some of the cultural pressures related to stigma when it comes to talking about their mental health and looking mm-hmm. for help for it. And mm-hmm. so some of the specific examples, I would say, it's interesting. I mean, I've never worked actually with very young children of Asian descent, and I think that's the landscape of that is changing now. But when I was working with kids, which most therapists do during the internship hours and before getting their license, um, you work with a lot of children, and I really didn't see that many kids of Asian descent come through these clinics that I worked at. Mm. And I think it's partially related to everything that we just talked about and a lot of families being unwilling to look for that kind of support. Um, Again, I think the landscape is 
quickly evolving. So that's great. Um, so most of the Asian clientele that I've worked with have been young adults. And these are adults often that have come in letting me know that their families don't know that they're doing this, mm. that if they were to try to explain to the parents that they were seeking out some kind of mental or emotional support, um, they might get some kind of pushback from the family or even resistance, maybe encouragement to stop. That's kind of some of the specific examples because it's it's thematic, right? It's happened more than once. So of these patients that you're seeing who are of Asian descent, are there patterns that you see of kind of more prominent mental health struggles? And then maybe looking at females versus males, are there kind of like ones that are more prominent between one gender or the other and with the cultural background? The prominent themes of anxiety, depression, and loneliness are pretty common across cultures. Um, but I do think it manifests kind of differently in a lot of the Asian American clients that mm. I've worked with because of this uh, experience of not really being able to be open about it with their families or some of their very close friends even. It's interesting because I think we can be open with our friends, but people are scared to bring it up first sometimes. So some of the themes I've seen in let's start with the Asian American woman, because all of us are that. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of my clients have expressed feeling like they've been socialized and raised and pressured to become a good wife and a good mother. These are often on top of the list of like this trajectory of life that's supposed to be. So there's a lot of uh, different mental and emotional struggles that come with that kind of expectation on people. A lot of uh, questions about identity, like where do I find myself and how do I address my personal needs while also attending to the things that my parents are looking for because for whatever reason we're all probably looking to at least make them somewhat happy mm. whatever happiness even means mm. um, and that's kind of a convoluted thing too I've, I've heard several clients talk about not being exactly sure about how to define happiness and having had experiences with parents saying life isn't about chasing happiness which is a very Western idea in terms of um, some of the Asian American male clients I've worked with. I think I'd be probably not surprised to learn that the issues that Asian American men experience look pretty different than maybe some mental or emotional struggles that men in Asia experience simply because of this experience in the United States, especially, and just in like Western media, all this kind of stuff. Asian men are kind of painted and portrayed in a certain way that they're not super manly or macho or like whatever mm -hmm. that means. Mm -hmm. um, whereas Asian men that grow up in Asia, they're not othered in this way. They are just men. Mm. Um, so this is an assumption on my part because obviously I haven't had any clients that are just Asian men from Asia. So I don't know what it is like for them exactly. But I have seen a lot of Asian American men that have a lot of insecurities about identity, even if they're not really presenting that way in their like professional space or with their friends and their family. But it's something that does come up in therapy if they even come to therapy. I will mm -hmm. say I haven't worked with a lot of Asian American men in therapy. And I think it's just because they're less likely to seek it out than Asian American yeah. women right now. That's at least in my experience. And it could be because yeah. I'm a woman, too. It could be that if there are Asian American men looking for therapy, they might be looking for a male therapist. So mm. there's a bunch of stuff to consider when it comes to that. So you've talked um, a little bit about depression and anxiety being the very prominent issues that you see people struggle with, with Asian descent, and then also maybe within our generation. If you could share with our listeners kind of like Mental Health 101, how would you kind of define some of these symptoms to recognize anxiety and then similarly depression sure so anxiety is more or less an emotion right it's something that we feel very internally um, 
and it's it's very future oriented so it's something that we experience when we're worried for example we might notice some kind of tension or internal turmoil about something that hasn't happened yet it may or may not even happen but anxiety pretty much manifests when something in the future is bothering us in some kind of way like inside we feel just uncomfortable and kind of restless even some of the physiological symptoms so that's just like what is your body going through that you can notice to see that you're probably experiencing some of this is like sweatiness perspiration increased heart rate probably higher blood pressure which isn't always something that you can feel Mm. gastrointestinal discomfort so just like bubble gut (laughs) having to go to the bathroom is pretty common maybe cold hands and feet and there are reasons behind all of this in undergrad I did study a lot of evolutionary psychology so that's just looking at human behavior in terms of how this was some kind of adaptation to help us survive. So I do look at anxiety as a mechanism that made its way through evolution and continues to be with us because it's a tool that we use um, to survive, right? So the perspiration um, comes from our body proactively trying to regulate temperature before we're about to exert a lot of energy to do something big. That's the same thing with the racing heart. Your heart is prioritizing blood to certain areas like your bigger muscle groups, your legs and your arms. Mm. And that's why your fingers and your toes might feel really cold when you're anxious because your body isn't focusing on sending a lot of blood to these fine motor skill areas of your body. Rather, you're getting ready to fight something like punch a bear or like run away from some kind of creature that's trying to attack you the problem is like i think society and culture has evolved way more quickly than our bodies have so we still have all these internal mechanisms to help us survive in the jungle or in the desert Mm -hmm. but now we just kind of sit there at our desks and have all this stuff like pent up those are some of the things you can notice and experience when you are anxious that's so interesting. It's like when I'm going up on stage to speak. It's like, I'm not fighting a bear. I'm just going yeah. up on stage to speak. <laughs> but I feel all of those symptoms. Exactly. Because I read something like 75% of US adults surveyed. I don't know how many people were surveyed, but it said like 75% of us experience some kind of performance anxiety when it comes to speaking in front of other people. Mm-hmm. And anxiety is also provoked when our body is perceiving some kind of threat, right? We're talking about this danger that you're trying to get away from. Um, and it's scary to be in front of a whole bunch of people that could judge you, that could make all these assumptions about who you are and your character, especially if you mess up when you're up there. So it makes sense to be scared of this stuff. And so when we're scared, we often get very anxious because it's about the unknown of the future. Mm. When it comes to depression, sometimes it's a chemical imbalance in your brain. I think a lot of us have heard that. And this is why a lot of psychotropic medication can be effective. Um, Sometimes it's a mood that's just triggered by thoughts or some kind of event or series of events in life. Sometimes it's all of the above. People with depression are going to experience this like persistent and ongoing feeling of sadness. They might experience a loss of interest in all things, especially things that they used to enjoy. And this loss of interest in stuff is referred to as anhedonia. There's also going to be this lack of drive or motivation or willingness to even care about doing anything. So I think a lot of us can have this picture of what it looks like to be a depressed person because we've seen it in movies and in TV Um, We've probably even seen it in our friends and in ourselves, if not our family members too. Um, But as someone that just has a hard time, for example, getting out of bed and motivating themselves to brush their teeth and take a shower, Mm -hmm. do their laundry, like take care of themselves because it could feel like 
life isn't really worth living anymore. And if you're someone that's no longer experiencing joy or anything in life to be exciting or novel anymore, it makes sense to feel like there really isn't anything to live for because those positive feelings are very much, I think, what gives us reasons to live, like really beautiful reasons to live. And so when someone's not seeing or experiencing that stuff, of course they would feel persistently sad. I think other depressed people might say it's not just about feeling sad, but also hollow or empty. Um, sometimes mm. there's feelings of hopelessness that things will never get better. And on the flip side, um, depression can manifest as a lot of irritability, frustration, and anger. So um, you see this more in like teens and sometimes even people that aren't super in touch with their feelings. They just kind of lash out in angry bursts. And it could just be because they're depressed. You're also probably going to have disturbances to your sleep patterns, whether that's you're sleeping way more than often or you can't sleep at all. This is all a sign of depression. And with those sleep disturbances, you're probably going to be really fatigued at times and have a lack of energy. Um, your appetite can get messed up, meaning you might be eating way more than you need to, or you're not motivated to eat at all. Mm -hmm. So it can go in either direction. So any kind of significant changes in weight is something that a therapist is probably going to assess for. Oftentimes when you are depressed, you're also probably experiencing anxiety. There is um, an unfortunate friendship between these two things, and they often come together. In that situation, Situation where you're experiencing both it can be really uncomfortable because you're trapped right you're like restless because of the anxiety but you're not motivated to do anything about it because you're so depressed so you're just a kind of a prisoner of your own mind and I yeah. think other things that come to mind are like feelings of worthlessness um, and then feeling guilty that you can't get yourself to do anything and then shame is another feeling that accompanies being depressed because um, I think a lot of people live with this idea that it's like I'm weak and I can't get myself to get better. Why is it that other people are out there succeeding at their careers and having good relationships? They're making their marriages work. Like what is wrong with me? And so guilt and shame becomes a huge thing. I think that those with depression struggle with also. Of course, on the extreme side of it is when you are now experiencing suicidal ideation, um, you might be even making plans or just like kind of ruminating on how you would do it, how you would end your life. You might hear about possible side effects of different um, antidepressants. And a lot of times they say it may increase your suicidal ideation. And I think a lot of people are very confused when they hear that. It's because part of what the medication is doing is it's increasing your activity level and your energy level and your motivation to do stuff. You've been so depressed, so you couldn't even plan to do something. But now that the medication is increasing this like active energy, now you have like more energy to think about how you would end up killing yourself. So mm. that's Oof. a strange and scary thing to consider when taking antidepressants and then finally I want to bring it back to this topic of being Asian because I think it is important to hear this too for a lot of the listeners that are Asian American mm -hmm. depression can manifest differently in Asian people and this has been found in a lot of different research studies it's been replicated and I've seen it myself um, in family members and in clients for whatever reason, a lot of times depression can manifest in um, somatic symptoms. So somatic symptoms is just referring to things that you feel in your body. So a lot of Asian clients may complain of back pain or headaches oh or mm. um, tension in their neck. And that could be an indication that they're actually struggling really hard with an emotional or mental problem. Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up because like my mom and I've been talking because my grandpa has like, he's one of the most healthy as an like, older man you could probably find in your life. He like, used to walk every day and all this stuff but then we went back to Taiwan and saw him like now he walks with a cane and my mom was like I actually think your grandpa
grandpa is depressed because a lot of his friends have passed away and like he's not moving as much anymore and he like blames a lot of things he's like oh my oh like my there's something wrong with my legs or something there's always something wrong and he goes to the doctor almost every week because he's like he needs to solve this issue but my mom's like i don't think it's a physical issue it's a mental issue at this point Mm -hmm. but people at that age don't really understand like like mental health isn't a thing they actually talk about or like are okay addressing because you're like they're so old right and i think it is part of the asian culture so as you're saying this i'm just like oh that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah There's a prevailing stereotype that Asian women all have stick straight jet black hair, but that's just not the case. One of the main points we make on this podcast is how even though we are all Asian American women, we are all really different, and that goes for our hair too. Janet has short, dark, but not quite black straight hair. Mel has thick, somewhat wavy brown hair with golden highlights, and me, I have long gray blonde textured hair. Function of Beauty formulates every bottle based on our unique hair types and hair goals. They gather your information through a quiz and you can customize with the fragrance and color. The last part, which we had a lot of fun with, was adding your name to be printed on the bottle. So we went with our nicknames for each other, Woo Woo, Mel Mel, and Jan Jan. They're vegan, cruelty-free, and never use sulfites, parabens, phthalates, or mineral oils. They're offering our listeners a savings of 20% on your first purchase. Go to functionofbeauty.com abg to take your four-part hair profile quiz and save 20% on your first order. Don't spend another minute in hair misery. Go to functionofbeauty.com abg to let them know that we sent you. That's functionofbeauty.com abg. Hey y'all, since we've all been social distancing ourselves, there's been a little more wine activity in some of our homes and we wanted to introduce you to Pure Wine. Pure Wine offers two unique products, the Wand, which filters wine by the glass, and the Wave, which filters and aerates a full bottle. Pure Wine filters work on all varieties of wine without affecting the natural taste, aroma, or color. Whether you experience headaches, congestion, skin flush, upset stomach, or hangovers, Pure Wine is the solution for you. Stock up on Pure Wine like you do those wine bottles. Use the promo code CORK20 to get 20% off your next purchase at drinkpurewine.com. Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swathers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swathers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swathers absorbs wetness better than a leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With free and gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. I shared on the previous episodes, like, I, I deal with anxiety a lot, and it's gotten a lot worse um, into my adulthood, and so I turned to things like meditation to kind of, like, temper it, 
But it wasn't until that, like, I actually got a panic attack that I talked to my doctor and she was like, maybe she was to get therapist. So, like, I know a lot of people right now, like, we're getting a lot of DMs asking, like, you know, when did you know it was the right time to seek therapy? Like, for me, I had to, like, reach a panic attack to seek therapy. Like, in your personal opinion, like, when do you think it's the right time to actually look for a therapist? I mean, I'm sorry that you are going through that. That sounds so difficult. This path of action of going to see a therapist because you've now had a panic attack, it's reminding me of how a lot of Asian people approach medical care too. It's like, well, I'm not going to go to the doctor unless I'm dying. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's it's good self-care to go to the doctor at least once a year for a physical checkup to be proactive and preventative about your physical health. And so I want to say the same thing about your mental health. I don't think there's ever a wrong time to go see a therapist. Obviously, it's going to be limited based on like your health insurance, for example, if you want to go that route. Um, if you have subsidized health insurance, for example, most of the time you have to go through an evaluation and an assessment and the therapist has to determine that you meet medical necessity, meaning you kind of have to be sick enough to get these services that are being paid for by the state or, you know, at the federal level too. But when it comes to being considerate of yourself and wanting to invest something into your overall wellness. I don't think that there's ever a wrong time to consider seeing somebody. Mm. Um, I think it's part of the human condition to have a lot of internal strife when it comes to identity, when it comes to feeling like you're in your place in the world and like things are all good. I don't think anybody is 100% there. And because I think life is a journey of constant self-improvement, um, having room to get to know yourself better in the context of relationship, but also in just being comfortable with who you are and being secure and confident in all that. So obviously when you break a bone, you want to go see a doctor. So if you've had a panic attack or if you're noticing frequent and chronic sadness, suicidal ideation, these are obviously times that you should seriously consider seeing somebody or talking to somebody. But at the same time, like if you've gone through some kind of adjustment um, this is actually a huge trigger for all of us to go through a variety of symptoms of anxiety and depression is like you've had a change in your job or you've moved or you've lost a friend or some kind of other change has happened. That's often um, a good time to consider talking to somebody because you might not even know what's going on with you and you just kind of feel out of it. Mm -hmm. I think as I entered, like, you know, speaking a therapist, like I have, I guess two questions, like how do you recommend our listeners to go find a therapist? And like, mm -hmm. there's so many different types of like mental health professionals, such as like a psychiatrist, a psych psychiatrist, psychiatrist, <laughs> a counselor. So I guess like, what is the difference and how do you know who to look for? Right, right, right. So first I'll talk on some of the differences and then we can talk to about how to find them. So a psychiatrist specifically is a medical doctor. This is someone that went to med school and then they specialized in psychiatry, right? It's a pretty interesting field in and it of itself because these people are doctors, they're physicians by nature, and then they specialized in something like a oncologist or an OBGYN or someone like that. It's just a specialty. And so psychiatrist is who you would go to if you need medication. And psychiatrist is often who your talk therapist will refer you to if the talk therapist thinks that you might benefit from medication or at least a consultation about that. So medication can be prescribed if you're having really, really hard time managing depression symptoms or even anxiety. The other thing, so there's like so many different license types out there that it can be quite overwhelming and it can feel confusing and like, what am I supposed to look for? Does it depend on what kind of problem I'm having? What if I'm having so many different kinds of problems? Do I then need 10 therapists? And really there's this term called psychotherapist, which is used pretty broadly and it covers a lot of different license types. And depending on the state too, there's also different licenses and that's a whole other thing. 
but there's licensed marriage and family therapists, which is what license I have. And so the focus on my education and training was very much about looking at the person in the context of relationships. So whether that's in their marriage or relationship or with their family, I'm constantly conceptualizing my clients as people that are part of a system of other people. That's actually a good time to consider talking to someone is when you notice that your relationships are struggling in some kind of way. You might be noticing that you've pushed people away or it feels like nobody wants to be around you or you're constantly getting into arguments with people that are important to you that could be a good sign that something is going on and then there's also lcsws which are licensed clinical social workers Um, they have a background in training in social work obviously but they're also trained to do individual therapy with you family therapy i do believe some do couples counseling also there's different like licensed professional clinical counselors licensed mental health counselors and then there's also clinical psychologists. So before it's a clinical psychologist, all those licenses I mentioned, most of them have the educational requirement of having a master's in some kind of counseling field or psychology, social work, something like that. Clinical psychologists have a doctorate and it could be a PhD or a PsyD. Um, so PsyD is a doctorate of psychology. PhD is very research focused. So you're probably working in a lab somewhere gathering a bunch of data where PsyD is more focused on the practice of therapy. All this to say, like all of these people are qualified to be your therapist, regardless of what your issue is. Mm. I think there is kind of some understanding that if you're having a severe mental disorder, you're probably going to want to look for a clinical psychologist that can do a full assessment and evaluation of what's going on. But anxiety, depression, adjustment issues, challenges at work, issues with relationships, um, problems coming up with your mood, like any of these kinds of therapists are somebody that you can look for and talk to. In terms of how to find them, it can be very overwhelming. There are big directories online now that exist that make it slightly easier. So some of the things that coming to my mind right now are like opencounseling.com, psychologytoday.com. These are big directories that you can search based on. I think you can enter like your zip code to see who's available in your local area. I don't know if it actually filters by availability, but you'll be able to see um, therapists who've listed themselves and you can call them to see if they have openings. You can also start, if you have health insurance, you can start with your health insurance panel to see a list of people that are part of it, meaning they accept your insurance. And whether that's they bill your insurance directly or you can get a bill from them to submit to your insurance provider for a claim for reimbursement. Those are a few ways. I had a question about that because I know we actually got a recently a DM from someone that's asking about therapy because she was like, I'm a college student. Like, you know, what is like the typical rate? Because, you know, I don't know if I could afford Mm -hmm. to have a therapist. So like, I guess like from your experience, like I know some therapists do like sliding scales, but what's a typical rate, I guess, for therapy? Um, So that also depends on like how you found this person. So often if you're going through your insurance, you'll usually have a copay of anywhere from like 20 to 50 bucks ish. If you're going to someone in private practice that, for example, does not take insurance, which this exists too, you're looking at anywhere from like 150 to upwards of like $300 an hour I've heard. Mm. And so it can be a little like quite pricey at the end of the day. Um, There's also a lot of barriers to this. I've heard and experienced too. It's, it's not easy to find a therapist. You can go to this gigantic directory, look for all these people, like come up with a list of 10 people that look like somebody you want to work with. You call all of them, get a bunch of voicemails 
And then you get callbacks saying that they're not taking clients right now. Or, yeah, I can get you in for a next appointment in six weeks. So mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of people like having to wait for a really long time or just not having luck finding somebody very quickly or efficiently. Yeah. So another option to consider that helps try to address some of these barriers that do exist is online counseling. And that is the space that I'm currently working in. Most of the online counseling platforms have tried to address some of this stuff, like whether it's difficulties with uh, managing your HMO or PPO and your insurance provider, or if it's because availability issues with online counseling, it's all remote. So you don't have to go into an office. So that eliminates the need of having somebody that's in the same zip code of you. Mm-hmm. Um, you generally will be good in terms of that because there's actually thousands of therapists in this country. It's just a matter of matching those people's experiences with um, a client that has those kinds of needs. And it could could be that somebody's in Northern California working with a therapist in Southern California. Um, yeah. So online counseling can be helpful in that way. And I have a question too. I feel like a lot of people struggle with getting good therapists through their insurance. Is there a reason why that's the case? I know a lot of like specialty therapists won't take insurance. I mean, like therapists are human too. And when you're part of an insurance panel, it can be kind of a headache to go through and make sure that you get paid for the services Mm -hmm. that you've provided. So once a lot of private practice therapists have gotten to a certain point in their career, they just don't want to bother with the paperwork anymore. And so it's like, I'm in demand, people are going to pay for these sessions, whether I accept their insurance or not. So I'm just going to not do that anymore. Especially if you're a specialist, you're definitely going to be somebody that people look for. In terms of this, like, challenge of finding a good therapist whether that's through your insurance panel or just in general it comes back to this human piece is we're still all humans and in an ideal world every therapist is trained to be professional enough to work with any kind of client coming in through the door but it's still very much a human connection Mm. and there's a relationship involved. And so if you don't click with this person or mesh with this person in the way that feels comfortable with you, it's going to feel really uncomfortable to start diving into some of your deepest and darkest thoughts and feelings. You could have seen a series of therapists that don't feel right, but it's probably not because they're bad therapists. They just weren't right for you. Mm -hmm. And that is part of, I think, the challenge in therapist shopping is finding someone that feels good. I mean, it's like the same thing in dating, right? It's so hard to find somebody that you click with and mesh with and feels like the right fit. And I can say the same for looking for friends, you know, as an adult woman, it's hard to find other adult women that you feel comfortable being friends with. Um, So I think it's on the same note as some of that stuff. It's just like this human connection piece of the therapeutic journey is so important and it's hard to connect with people period. Yeah. And I can't even imagine like you as a therapist having to listen to so many stories and almost having this like, I mean, I don't know if this is bad to say, but like that's like um, blanket of like sadness throughout your day because you have to listen to so many people talk about their struggles and sometimes it gets really, really like deep too. Do you yourself have a therapist? I have in the past. (laughs) I don't presently have one, but it is, I think, extremely important for therapists to be in therapy throughout their careers, whether it's ongoing mm-hmm. or here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, because yes, it's it's emotionally draining and it brings up a lot of your own personal stuff when your clients are talking about things that are relatable, which a lot of things are because we're all connected in this interconnected humanity kind of way. Yeah, It is actually a requirement for those that are training to become licensed professionals to go into therapy Because if you're not really sure of yourself and if you're not good with your own 
like values, your opinions, your stances and world ideology, that kind of stuff gets really shaken up by the things that your clients bring to you. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to really have good insight into who you are so that your damaged parts don't bleed into the relationship with your client. That's like an important thing I talk about with those that are considering therapy is like we all have wounds inside of us, right? And if we don't do things to heal these wounds, we end up bleeding on other people. It's very important, I think, for therapists to um, constantly be doing the emotional and mental work required of them to be good you know be in a good place doing their own self-work too yes absolutely so hey sue i've um i've had experiences with seeing a couple of different therapists and kind of the plethora of the different backgrounds like you mentioned some that was a psyd some that was an lmft Mm -hmm. some that was a psychiatrist um, and I feel like generally, like you had mentioned, most people are going to aim for those of this, a similar either cultural background or gender background. Um, how important do you think it is to look for those things? I've seen both male and female. And one of my ways of thinking was that, A, like you said, it's really hard to find like a good match. So and even just getting access to someone who maybe has a profile you're looking for, but also accepting new patients. But also I thought maybe if I see someone who is really different than me, they might be able to offer an alternative perspective that I hadn't thought about mm-hmm. in some of the things that I'm dealing with. Yeah. What would you have to say to kind of maybe some of our listeners who are thinking through the profile of seeking a therapist? Right. I think that there are definitely pros and cons to the search of someone that's similar to you. Um, I think a lot of prospective clients out there do have this idea that obviously if my therapist is just like me, they're going to get me. They're going to understand me a lot better and then they're going to help guide me in better ways to self-actualization and healing because they know who I am because they are who I am. So I see a lot of clients coming through looking for someone that's very similar to who they are. So as an example, you might have a client coming in like, I would like a therapist that identifies as a queer woman of color that grew up in the northern parts of the United States and has experience with incarcerated individuals in their family like super duper specific because the client thinks only that kind of person is going to understand me my hope is that therapists out there have done that emotional and mental work to be in a place that they don't have to be exactly like their clients to be an effective clinician for them some of the cons that I can think of is that if you as a therapist are similar seemingly in background to your client, you're running into the danger of making assumptions about the similarities that you have. And you are needing to tread carefully in terms of making those assumptions of thinking that you understand everything about this person because you look like them. At the same time, I think there is a lot of value in looking for a therapist that does have similar background to you because I've also seen unfortunate situations in which people of color will have a white therapist And they're talking about different family dynamics and things that they've experienced as children and the therapist pathologizing some of these dynamics and the ways that their parents have treated them, saying that it was abusive, for example, when if you are to look at it in the context of the country where the parent came from, it's socially acceptable there. So then you have a client that's coming out of sessions even more confused about their relationship with their parents. So That's like a weird thing that I've seen kind of happen. So I think there is value in looking for a therapist, especially of color, if you are a person of color, because there are some things that can be addressed in a different kind of way. There's, you know, this risk of like misjoining or not 
getting the point or making assumptions versus like real firsthand empathy and understanding on the mm. a therapist side. Ultimately, I still think it's like an individual and individual thing. It's, it's still going to be based on the person and not so much about whether this person is a woman or a person of color or something like that. And when it comes to the gender thing, it's also very context specific. So transference is the experience of the feelings and thoughts that a client has for their counselor or for their therapist. Mm. And so that kind of stuff comes into consideration a lot if the thing that you're coming to therapy about is focused around some kind of relationship that you've had in the past. So for example, you'll see a lot of female clients that refuse to work with male therapists because they've been raped by a man in the past. So that kind of thing can mm. come up. Um, and you'll also see schools of thought thinking like maybe you should see a male therapist so you can have the positive and healing experience of knowing that not all men are out there to hurt you. Mm -hmm. So it can be very context specific. I've seen and read and experienced and heard of a lot of instances in which uh, people will try to maybe unconsciously or maybe they're aware of it too, but try to recreate relationships from their life that didn't work out with their therapist. So if somebody had like a missing father in their life, they might actually look for an older male therapist to try to recreate this relationship and experience that they didn't have. And so that's that word transference that I talked about kind of covers all that stuff too, is just the experience of mm -hmm. someone with the feelings that they have towards the therapist. And then on the flip side, there's countertransference, which is all the feelings and experiences that the therapist is having about this client because we're not mm. robots and we are going to have yeah. feelings and thoughts about our clients we're going to love them we're going to hate them we're going to think about them worry about them and all that stuff can come out in sessions too mm. i always tell my therapist yeah. i know you love me because <laughs> <laughs> she can't touch me so i'll i have to give her a hug and then she'll yeah. be like okay i'll give you this hug but they, they can't approach me outside in the real world or there's all of these different things that you wouldn't you know think yeah. about as limitations exactly. of what you can or cannot do with your therapist and what you're describing there are like ethical guidelines that exist for therapists mm. and these come about for a variety of reasons but some of the big stuff that i'm thinking of is like there's a an inherent power dynamic the power differential between therapist mm. and client the therapist is a person in the position of authority the client is the one that's extremely vulnerable in this space opening themselves mm. up for this person to now know everything about them where you probably don't know that much about your therapist mm -hmm. and so because there's this like imbalance in in power in the relationship it's very important for the client to be protected in all ways inside and outside of the therapeutic session mm -hmm. so that thing about not touching you and not approaching you in public it's like the client should never feel cornered or pressured to do anything for the therapist yeah if the client wants to approach us great and if the client wants to you know, do something, this and that, like they were never pressured to do that. That's the hope. I'm sure your therapist probably enjoys being with you. And it's not that she doesn't want to <laughs> hug you. But My therapist <laughs> is a, a tough cookie. She gives me tough love. For the people who are kind of on the fence of seeking therapy, like, do you have a quick story of like someone who actually benefited like a progress story from therapy? Oh, um, I'd like to think all of my clients have made progress. Uh, I think people look for this stuff for a variety of reasons. And the two categories I've mostly seen are they're looking to reduce some kind of symptom. So it could be that like their job performance has suffered, their sleep schedule is thrown off, they just don't feel right. So they're trying to get rid of symptoms, right? 
or they're coming to therapy looking for increased insight. They want to learn more about themselves and they want to be a better person. So depending on how you're coming to therapy, you kind of work in the beginning stages with your therapist to identify what your concerns are so that you can solidify what your goals are because that's like the whole point is to have some kind of goal to work towards in this relationship and this treatment process. So when it comes to success stories, I'm actually thinking of a past Asian American female client that I've had that came in struggling deeply with social anxiety. So for your listeners that aren't super familiar with what social anxiety is as a mental health disorder, um, it's not just being nervous around other people, but it's, it's clinical, right? It's when you find yourself completely avoiding social situations, having panic attacks, being triggered just by the thought of hanging out with a group of people is near impossible to physically get up and do a speech in front of others. Um, you might have a hard time eating in front of other people. It's just like a lot of extreme anxiety in the face of being in front of other people. So she came in with these concerns and we worked together for, I want to say about six months. When it comes to anxiety, there's a lot of concrete skills and tools that your therapist is going to be able to teach you, which is a great thing. When it comes to anxiety, it's a lot of identifying these cognitive distortions that you're experiencing. So things in your mind that are maybe not so rational in terms of your logic or the way that you're thinking, your therapist will help you identify some of these things and replace them with healthier thoughts and things that can help improve your self-image and your sense of self-worth. After about six months, she was able to go out, hang out with friends, do speeches in front of people. It was a huge shift just because she was able to start thinking about herself differently and identifying triggers in the world that she could center herself with. Like meditation is actually a really good thing and it doesn't just have to be you sitting, you know, cross-legged on the ground and chanting ohms. It's about <laughs> being in tune with your present moment and mm. living a mindful life um because when you're in tune with your present moment then you're not obsessing over the future which is what anxiety is mm. on that note anxiety is not something that goes away it's not something that we get rid of in therapy it's more about learning to manage it and live with it because mm. anxiety in various levels is actually healthy for us because it's what helps us plan ahead make sure that we're taking care of ourselves it is a survival skill it's just a matter of harnessing that energy and using it for good versus letting it take over our lives. Beautifully said. Thank you for that. So I wanted to move into the current state of the world. With everything going on with COVID-19, there is this general global state of anxiety, especially with xenophobia and racism against the Asian community, which is causing a lot of fear, anger, and overall stress. Like I know for me, I find myself going to go out to get groceries and I will wear a hat or a cap in a sense to like hide my face because I am in this general state of like fear of going out now, right? Um, what would you recommend for our listeners if they are maybe involved in an incident where they're feeling afraid or even worse, if they get verbally or physically attacked? You know, I wish I had um, a very good answer for this, but it's hard to say because admittedly, I've been very afraid too. I've been scared for mm -hmm. my parents, for my family, a lot of my friends, some of my clients and myself, you know, like when I leave my home, I'm also having that internal debate of like, should I wear a mask? Because... If I wear a mask, people are going to think I have it. And if I don't wear a mask, yeah. they're going to yell at me to wear a mask. <laughs> I've seen so much stuff online about this stuff. And so here's the human side of me saying, like, I've been anxious about this, too. 
And it's been a lot to process while trying to continue to be a therapist for my clients that are struggling with all the stuff that's going on in terms of impact to people's jobs and their family lives and how they're going to upkeep their everyday lifestyle during all this stuff. So when it comes to someone that is fearful of some kind of discrimination or even someone that's experienced it, I do think it's important to find somebody to process this with, whether that's a professional or not, is totally up to you because I think this is something that you can find some healing from by just having a sense of community, trying to avoid isolation, which is hard with this period of time, right? It's like we're Mm -hmm. needing to stay isolated to protect public health at large. So my advice is to use the technology that we have at hand to stay connected with the people that you feel close to so that you're not just Mm -hmm. hold up alone. Because maintaining this sense of community will also remind you that you're not alone in these struggles and these experiences. And there are people there that want to support you and be there for you. Of course, if you've actually been a victim of one of these uh, unfortunate situations like depending on the situation I can't tell you what to do but my encouragement would be to speak out about it like use whatever platforms you have if you have people that can speak on it if it's a crime that needs to be reported these are things that need to be brought into the light in order for somebody or some entity or some group of people as humanity to address it because if you just like hole up and don't say anything about it and do what a lot of us are raised to do and just suck it up Mm -hmm. and try to move on quietly it's just gonna rot inside of you I think yeah and turn into those wounds that will end up bleeding on other people somewhere down the line whether that's next week or in a few years from now Mm -hmm. so I think many people now especially Asian Americans are in a position to speak out about this stuff and use the internet as a platform for example to bring awareness and attention to the unfortunate situations that are happening because Mm -hmm. even if you're not getting support physically right next to you you can have the support of a very large community with you Um, so I think it's just important to bring awareness to the situation and so that it's not ignored or forgotten I had a question for that topic too because like I know you mentioned like you know obviously all of us are in social isolation and like I think it's really great that we have the platform of you know the internet to like you know raise awareness I think for me like even though I love I love social media that's what I do full-time actually as a job that I think sometimes what I what I've noticed the behavior I'm doing is that, like I check my phone every day for the news and unfortunately I, all I see is like really really just sad things about like our friends losing their business due mm. to the coronavirus or like all these videos like people being racist towards Asian Americans and Asians and I think to some degree like I feel myself like I'm not directly directly affected by this racism because like I'm not being you know personally racially attacked but I'm affected by reading and seeing all these like horrendous things are happening around me to like I feel like I'm kind of like losing myself or losing like mm-hmm. like I feel myself becoming really down yeah. I think one I feel like a sense of like I'm not doing my part as an Asian American to stand up to, to people but at the same time I feel like I I can't I can't look at this anymore because it's just like I don't want to feel myself just unraveling at the same time I feel like I was talking to another friend who felt the same way because she's like I'm on social but like all I see is sad things but then mm-hmm. how, do I, how do you expect me to stay connected and feel like not too socially isolated Mm -hmm. so I think one thing I'm trying to do it's not the best is just like limit my time on my phone but I don't know if you have any other advice for people or maybe who are like like me that that are affected by these videos or these the news articles that aren't necessarily directed to them but like kind of correlated a lot of us are struggling to find the balance in staying informed and knowing what's going on in terms of what are the facts but also not letting ourselves spiral into panic from all the the stimulation and the input that we're getting online so i think limiting time 
um, is pretty important. And that's actually something that I've been needing to do for myself too, is limiting my time of consuming news, whether that's online or some other outlet to, at least for me, I've been trying to limit to 30 minutes a day because that's when I start noticing my anxiety really spiking. If I'm looking at my phone for much longer than that, because I want to stay informed. I want to know what's going on. I want to keep myself safe in terms of all the guidelines that are being placed by local government and whatnot. But at the same time, it's like you don't want to let yourself go into this black hole of information, especially of stuff that might not be true. And then all the scary stuff that we're seeing that's happening to a lot of Asian Americans. I think what you're describing actually is called vicarious trauma. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that a lot of therapists and caregivers like healthcare professionals, EMTs, like these kinds of people will experience something called vicarious trauma, which is experiencing the trauma of other people by simply being a witness to it. Mm -hmm. And so some of the symptoms of having experienced trauma include, you know, just like vigilance and fearfulness, increased anxiety, even some paranoid thoughts can come to mind. And that's how powerful trauma is, collective trauma that's happening to a group of people. We can experience it by just by reading stuff or looking at videos. So it's important to address these things by continuing to maintain some kind of regimen that's focused on self-care. And I know self-care is like such a cliche thing that that term is thrown around so much. And um, when I'm talking about self-care, I'm really not talking about self-indulgence. I'm not talking about treat yourself all the time. I'm talking about making sure that you're sleeping well and keeping up with sleep hygiene. I think a lot of us staying at home are kind of in this dangerous world of really messing up a sleep schedule because we're not tied to a lot of the responsibilities that we have outside of our homes. I think it's important to maintain um, a healthy and balanced diet, whatever that looks like for your specific needs, like nourishing yourself with real food. Because if you're not feeling good on the inside, when it comes to like what you're consuming, it's definitely going to affect your mood too. Mm -hmm. Maintaining self-care is so important when we're experiencing all this vicarious trauma. And then you touched on this other thing that it's something that I've experienced as well, just being in different kinds of minority groups or marginalized people. It's this experience of like, okay, so do I speak up? Is it my responsibility to do something for everybody or on the other hand, it's like, it shouldn't be my burden to do this. Like people of the dominant culture in the place that I am, they have all the access to the information. They should educate themselves. Like, why should that responsibility fall on me? Um, so I don't know what the right answer or the right direction of action is supposed to be. But I think in all of these cases, like we're allowed to feel whatever we're feeling right now. And I think doing the things that are in line with what you think are important in terms of your values are very important right now because we want to keep living the lives that are important to us even while we're stuck at home. Yeah, no, and I, I completely agree. I think it's hard to say if there's more harm than good maybe done with reposting some of these things that are just so hurtful and painful, especially, especially when we're all self-isolating and it's hard for us to do anything but consume that media Right. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I agree. It's like limit the amount of information that you can take and whatever whatever you are feeling, um, Mel, especially for you right now, too. It's like whatever you're feeling is, is super valid and there's no need for you to constantly consume this just to feel like you because you feel like you have to. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone is feeling this sort of level of anxiety, especially for the unknown when this is all going to end things that we're reading in the news and all of that. Hey, Sue, and just term, in terms of like symptoms and mm -hmm. whether it's emotional or physical that someone listening right now might be feeling, when would it be the right time to maybe seek out help? 
you know, as I mentioned earlier, and of course I'm going to be biased with this, it's like, it's never the wrong time. But I think when you're now experiencing some problems in your main areas of function, so what do I mean by that? It's like, for most of us, our main areas of function as adults are our jobs. But of course, if you're a student, it's going to be school. Mm -hmm. If you're a freelancer, it's like the work that you're doing. If this has been impaired in some way, like you can't function that's probably a good indicator that you should talk to somebody. Um, again, if your relationships are suffering, these are the big things that I'm looking for most of the time is like just your function in your main contexts of life, which is your job, your relationships with important people and function out there. Like if you're unable to function, then you probably want to talk to somebody. So mm -hmm. it doesn't turn into a more serious issue. And when I say serious issue, of course, I think in the back of every therapist's mind is the most serious issue of someone contemplating ending their life because they can't think of or come up with any way to live anymore. Mm. And is there potential that even if someone is not aware that they have been heavily emotionally impacted today, mm -hmm. that they might see signs like many months or even years down the road after a large scale traumatic incident like this? Yeah, definitely. I think it's kind of a built-in coping mechanism sometimes to keep some of this stuff buried down deep inside because you know you have to provide for people or there are others depending on you and you can't let yourself fall apart. I don't know how scientific this is, but like I think of it like your immune system. I think a lot of people have experienced like once they finally get a vacation after an extended period of working, they get sick on the first day. Mm. And I think it's because your immune system and your body kind of knows like I don't have to keep it up anymore because I don't have to go to work today. And then mm. now you get sick because it just lets go. Um, I think our internal mechanisms when it comes to dealing with emotional and mental pain is kind of similar sometimes. You have to survive. So you go into this mode of continuing to get things done because you have to. I think a lot of people in the Asian American community, too, are raised with a lot of grit. And so it helps us, but it also helps us bury a lot of things that come out later, maybe mm. years down the road, looking very ugly and like something else. I guess one last question to sort of wrap up this segment. If I wanted to support someone who is emotionally affected what are some ways that I can support them or what's the best approach to supporting someone who might be going through just emotional trauma? Another very hard question because each person <laughs> is going to respond to so many things differently. But generally speaking, it sounds like you're you're asking for somebody that you probably care about, right? And yeah. in that context, you probably know them. So if there's someone that oftentimes needs space, you can consider giving them the space that they need and just inviting them to come to you when they are ready and when they want to just letting them know that you're there for them mm -hmm. if there's someone that needs company can make yourself present i mean it's hard to go over to your friend's house right now because that's not recommended or advised but you can do things like video chat and staying connected through technology people are doing a lot of stuff online people as in companies now are creating a lot of products to help us stay connected online so i definitely encourage folks to look into that stuff i think it is kind of dangerous right now to tell your friends like everything is gonna be fine because that can be a little bit dismissive of someone's feelings, especially when they're feeling kind of hopeless, like yeah. things are not going to be fine. I don't need to hear that. Yeah. Um, so I think when we instinctively do that or turn to some kind of like, I don't know, like cheesier affirmation, we're trying to help, but we're inadvertently trying to 
bury it or like diminish whatever this issue is. So that's one of the skills that a therapist will do. We will validate the concerns that our clients are bringing to us rather than trying to make the concerns go away by saying that they don't exist. That, that makes me think of that scene from, um, from Inside Out where Bing Bong like loses all of his stuff. And I think the, the fairy person was just like, you know what? It's okay. Let's just go. It's fine. And then he like doesn't really feel anything from that. But then sadness comes by and sits down next to him. And she's just like, I know how much that meant to you. And then he was like, yeah, it did mean a lot. He was like, you know what? I feel a little bit better now. Like we can start going. Yeah. So that like that scene really does depict how it's important to not just be like, everything's going to be okay, but to really validate mm-hmm. someone's feelings, I guess, when you're supporting them. Yeah. I love that movie, by the way. And yeah, it's it speaks to how every emotional experience that we have is there for some reason. Yeah. We have our emotions to signal to us and communicate to us something. And then we have outward displays of these feelings because we are social creatures. This act of crying, it's a visible thing so that others know that you need comfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When sadness is there to validate the feelings of bing bong it's important because joy the little fairy she's like trying to make everything better by being happy all the time but that's not real life and that movie itself just communicates how each feeling is important in its own way that expressing our sadness to others is how we're able to connect to and reach deeper levels of connection with those around that want to help you in times of distress yeah awesome so hey so we've talked a bit around dealing with the worldwide issue of COVID-19. And you touched upon this a little bit, but now we are all, you know, social isolating, social distancing. And for a lot of our listeners, um, we have a lot of listeners in heavy, like, metropolitan areas. They're probably in pretty small, like, apartments, and many of them might be living alone. Mm -hmm. So do you have any additional tips for someone who is going to be social isolating alone in a small space, um, you know, for an unknown amount of time. (laughs) That is a tough one. But I think during a time like this, it's, like I said, really easy to let your sleeping schedule go. But it's also a lot easier to forget about basic hygiene when we're alone. And there's kind of no social pressure or expectation to take care of that stuff. But letting all that stuff go will eventually lead to this like feeling of being a slob and I think that's actually very deeply connected to depression um, because these are the symptoms of depression of just like letting all those things go so willing yourself to continue brushing your teeth you know taking showers doing your laundry take care of your home is super important right it's like even if nobody's observing or witnessing you at this time, it's important to continue taking care of yourself, to continue communicating to your body and your mind that you are someone that needs to be taken care of, that your self-worth is still there. Mm -hmm. I think those that suffer from depression and anxiety already, they do have inclinations to stay home and stop engaging in any kind of exciting activity already. Um, And now that the world is not just giving us permission to do that, but instructions to stay home, I think the sense that we should be out and about doing something isn't there because we're not supposed to be. And those that could really use something like that to motivate themselves to get out of the house and do something might struggle with this. So Mm -hmm. it becomes even more important, I think, to kind of visualize if that looks like writing it down, if you work well with like agendas, to-do lists, like somehow keeping yourself accountable to maintaining some structure in your life. I think that can be pretty powerful just so that, you know, the 18 hours that you're awake don't fly by in the blink of an eye because you're just numbing yourself with whatever vice. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned previously, you said self-care isn't self-indulgement. Um, 
what is the difference then? Because like when I think of self-indulgement, like I like to binge watch Korean dramas. I'm like, is that considered self-care or self-indulgement? Right, right, right. I think there's a fine line between like, you know, overindulging yourself and then really caring for yourself. So self-care to me, I have to first think about what it looks like to care for another person. When you're caring for another person, you often will probably go out of your way to do something for this other. Imagine someone that's super important to you. They call you at 3 a.m., and they say that they're stranded somewhere, generally we will get up out of the bed and go get them because this person's important. No second thoughts, mm-hmm. right? It's depending on who it is. Um, but a lot of times we won't take that effort for ourselves for whatever reason. A lot of times we won't do this uncomfortable thing because it's best for us. For some reason, we don't prioritize ourselves. And I think that is common to a lot of different people, but especially for Asian American women, we're raised to do this because our moms do that. Our moms have done that for our dads and for us. Mm-hmm. We've seen this exemplary person of never really considering her own needs. And so I think we live in this strange limbo land of like doing that too, accommodating others and over accommodating in such a way that we don't have energy for ourselves. When I think of self-care, I'm, I'm thinking about going the extra mile and taking the extra effort to really be there for you, like me, right? Yeah. Um, so that could feel like forcing yourself to exercise. You know, it might not be what you want to do right now, but it is best for you. It's the same thing for someone that you care deeply about and you see them going into this very sedentary lifestyle that's not good for them. You're probably going to encourage them or at least hint at some way that they should probably change their lifestyle a little bit. Same thing with food for someone that you care about deeply. You don't want to see them subsisting on like ice cream and Cheetos all the time you want them to nourish themselves with real food so it's the same for you stuff that tastes good in the moment and feels good in the moment it feels good because we're being hit with this like dose of dopamine from our brain but that's not in the long run going to be what maintains overall wellness and health Mm -hmm. that fine line between self-care and self-indulgence too is looking at like using food as a treat for yourself like occasionally great whatever in moderation but once someone now is looking to food all the time as their source of happiness, that's when you can start developing disordered eating and a really unhealthy relationship with food, which is supposed to be something that helps us live. Um, When it comes to binge watching TV, I think all of us sometimes really benefit from shutting down our brains and just consuming something passively where we don't have to do stuff. I think, however, once it's now consuming all of your time and you're not doing anything else, that's where it's a little bit um, unproductive for yourself. Like if you're letting go of relationships that are important to you because you'd rather watch TV for eight hours a day every day, that's kind of, I think, the distinction. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that, Hesu. I think that wraps our episode for today. Hey, Sue, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you sharing your expertise in mental health with all of our listeners and also sharing with us your personal background. Uh, would you like to let our listeners know where they might be able to find you online? Sure. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and a privilege to be able to talk on mental health to a community 
that is really near and dear to me because it's something I identify with. And in terms of the online space, I'm actually pretty private. (laughs) So I'm not really on social media, but um, I do have a profile on BetterHelp's website, which is betterhelp.com slash hesu dash joe. Other than that, you know, if you're interested in online counseling, I would definitely encourage anyone to check out the website. If you have questions, you can always contact the support team. There's a contact page on the website, but you can also reach out by emailing contact at betterhelp.com and somebody's going to be available to assist you with any questions you might have about the service so you don't have to commit right away Um, you can kind of see if it's a good fit for you before making that choice we actually started partnering with BetterHelp recently so if you are interested as Heisu mentioned you can go to betterhelp.com slash abg and they're actually offering 10% off the first month to our listeners so you can access the link in our show notes you can find us on all the podcasting platforms like Spotify Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts subscribe and leave us a rating and review at Asian Boss Girl and if you'd like to support us through monthly donations you can do so at anchor.fm slash Asian Boss Girl slash support. And we are very active on social media. Our handle is at Asian Boss Girl. Let us know you're listening by taking a screenshot on your phone, sharing on your IG story, and tagging us. You know, you can also include something that you learned from today from our special guest, Hesu, and we'll restore it on our own Instagram. And also, we have just launched our YouTube channel, so you can find us at Asian Boss Girl. We just released our New York City vlog. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks so much, Hesu. Till the next episode. Bye! Bye.